This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. JP and I are super excited. It is a Memorial Day weekend, and we are very uh, much in awe and want to honor uh, folks who've served this country, whether they be in the military, uh, in the reserves, or in first responder type uh, roles. And we are going to kick this off, this mini series, by uh, bringing on a guest who I've met in person who I was absolutely impressed by, Ricky Ditzel. Ricky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dr. Wang. Very happy to be here. Now, I got to meet you a couple weeks ago uh, at Fort Bragg in North Carolina at the uh, SOMA meeting, the Special Operations Medicine Association, which is really, really a cool meeting. I mean, I I was blown away. Uh, these are the medics and docs and nurses that take care of the special operators. And uh, the, the exhibit hall, I mean, JP would have loved it. They had all these like simulators for how to deal with canine battle injuries and, you know, like on dogs and stuff. It was really, really very cool and opened my eyes. And I got to meet Ricky. Um, Ricky, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves, uh, about yourself and, and, and what, what brought you to your current state of affairs? Yeah, sure, Dr. Wang. And, um, I'm glad you enjoyed the conference so much. Uh, I was honored to have you there. So uh, I'm from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I have an older brother and sister, and I actually joined the military 30 days after graduating high school. So I joined the Army at 18 years old. Uh, I knew that I wanted to be a medic because I took high school anatomy and physiology and kind of just fell in love with the language. So uh, it just seemed to click for me. And I, I had this side of compassion from taking, helping take care of my older brother who has a cerebral palsy and some other uh, neuro deficits. And so I, I joined the military as a medic uh, early on. Uh, and then I was very lucky to serve with 82nd Airborne and then successfully screened uh, and assessed for the Army Special Operations Aviation Command and became a special operations critical care flight paramedic for them and did that for a number of years. Uh, and through that, had some you know, some deployments that were, um, you can say kinetic and I learned a lot from those missions and I learned a lot from my experiences there and ultimately decided that I wanted to be a physician and through, um, experiences overseas where people were suffering from traumatic brain injuries, uh, chronic spine conditions from jump injuries or explosions or what have you in my experiences, my brother, I've just always fell in love with, uh, the brain and, and, and the spine. So, Got out of the military in 2020, uh, completed a post-bac uh, at Columbia University after doing a disaster management degree at GWU. And then I did two years of neuropathology research at Icon School of Medicine, studying uh, the effects of TBI on veterans in postmortem human brain tissue. And been a lot involved with a number of nonprofit organizations for veterans for about nine years now. And uh, just really passionate about helping veterans get to higher education and then helping with the chronic effects of traumatic brain injury. Well, Ricky, that's uh, that's an incredible CV that you just gave verbally. But I, I think some of the most exciting stuff that I got to know about you in preparing for this episode. One, I love talking to another Floridian. Uh, I lived in Fort Lauderdale <laughs> for a few years, so it's great to hear you're from there. But more exciting uh, to me is that, like me, I, I learned recently you're going to be transplanting from the Sunshine State up here to Chicago. And the one thing you left out with your your course of life there and your professional evolution is what you're going to be doing come this fall. So tell your listeners what the next step in your career is going to be and where you're doing it. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, very excited, very humbled. I'll be attending a Rush Medical College here in the fall um, to begin my journey towards an MD. That And 
that that's just phenomenal. We're we're excited to have you here. It's obviously a great medical school, and for someone interested in neurosurgery, um, as our listeners have heard, both you know some of the luminaries in the field before they were on the show, but also getting to hear some conversations with a lot of my attendings at the show. It, it's a great department, and we look forward to having you here and helping nurture you as you develop uh, in your career. Um, I'm interested though, because obviously we're here to dive into your background and what led you to this career path and some of the experiences you could share. But before we really dive into that, as we said, we're having this conversation and releasing the episode Memorial Day weekend. So if I could briefly uh, kind of probe your feelings about that a little bit, because at anyone who might be listening from outside of the United States, we do have some uh, international audience. In this country, Veterans Day is for the living veterans who are out there in our community to honor them, respect them, and take a day to remember their service. But Memorial Day is for the fallen veterans or uh, people, whether they died in combat or after their service, it's a day to remember them. So as someone who is a veteran yourself, Ricky, now going into medicine, but younger, but a living veteran, what is what is the experience of, of Memorial Day like for you? And what kind of things do you and, and your colleagues think about on this day? And what, what would you like us to think about? Uh, most most definitely. And I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk about that exact question. Um, first and foremost, I, I think a little quote will help ground, you know, ground the audience and ground uh, others in what Memorial Day can mean to a lot of us. So I, I a, the last paragraph of the creed for the unit that I served with is that um, we we always say that we serve with the memory and pride of those who have gone before us. For they love to fight, fought to win, and would rather die than quit. Um, and there's nothing more true, more true. And, and nothing more that I believe deeply uh, than that statement right there. Um, Memorial Day is a hard weekend. It's a hard day. Uh, but it's also a wonderful day and also a wonderful weekend. Um, and that's because it's completely okay and necessary to feel the emotion of what it, what you remember, what it feels like to lose a brother or sister, whether in combat, whether in the United States, a training accident, um, a suicide, a deployment injury, whatever, whatever it may be that uh, caused them to lose their life after years of service. Um, it's a lot, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's, it's painful, but to have a day and a weekend for people to sit back and reflect and to feel that emotion, I think is very healthy and necessary. And it should be okay to feel that way. Now, on the contrary, I don't think that we should just sit back and wallow in that emotion or, or just fully shut down in that pain or that sorrow. I think it's a great weekend and day to reflect and to live. And if that's barbecuing, if that's going to the beach, that's having your best friends around you, having an adult beverage, throwing a football around or what have you, whatever your tradition is, I think that's exactly what we should be doing. So I think what it means to me is it is a day to pause, reflect, honor the absolute ultimate sacrifice, serve with the memory and pride of those who've gone before us, surround ourselves with our families, a friend, and realize how absolutely grateful and lucky we are that those people are willing to give their lives in the way that they did so that we could have the freedoms that we have. Ricky, that's so well said. And I do want to offer a shout out from our podcast to all of the folks uh, in the audience who have served or have loved ones who have served 
in uh, not just the U.S. military, but all militaries, you know, because it is, as you said, it is a, a true commitment um, uh, and potentially the ultimate sacrifice. Now, I am, I'm looking over your CV and I'm just absolutely blown away. I'm looking at the awards you've gotten, like the Sikorsky Rescue Pin and the Boeing Rescue Pin, and you've served in so many environments. Um, you've been at Fort Sam Houston, Fort Bragg, Fort Campbell, uh, Fort Benning, and uh, in Africa uh, for French Jungle Warfare School, and you've done so many cool things, right? And I, as a kid, the thing I wanted to do most was I wanted to become a helicopter pilot. And I, my vision, you know, wasn't that good. I wear contacts, and and I I never could realize that kind of dream, but. When you and I met in um, in North Carolina, you told me about what you were actually doing uh, when you were in the service, and you were the medic on board a Black Hawk helicopter. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Now, tell me what that's like, because you know we, you know, I've run enough of, and I'm sure JP, you know, everybody listening, right? We've run codes in hospitals, and um, you know, you have all the equipment there, you have all the people there. It's a stable um, environment, gyroscopically. Um, there's no noise interference. And I'm thinking about how difficult this must be in a confined space on a, um, <laughs> a helicopter, which is probably the most unstable vehicle there is. Right? <laughs> we know about, I, I think the number of helicopter-related hospital deaths is, is pretty significant, right? Because helicopters just flying for life flights, they, they, they crash with some regularity. So what is that like? Like, how do you even prepare yourself for that? How do you function in that environment? Well, I, I think it's like the same way that anybody prepares for their environment that they're in. I think for others, for outsiders looking into the operating room, the operating room can seem extremely unstable and terrifying and high pressure. And, you know, all eyes are on you as the, as the surgeon. So I think it's like any environment where you have to, you have to, you have to get on the bird. You have to understand the way it functions you have to become comfortable working in confined spaces and start to chop away um, things that you're used to having when you have more space uh, and start adding in factors and controlling for those factors. What I mean by that is, you know, sometimes overseas, I didn't have doors on the helicopter. And when you're flying 160 miles per hour uh, with a patient laying on the floor of that on a, on a stretcher, uh, you have to be able to work in with wind, you know, wind becomes your enemy and, and noise is your enemy. And we were doing most of our things at night. So now I have to work with a headlamp in my mouth, usually a blue light or a red light while I'm assessing these casualties. So it was just training the way we fought at all times and finding ways to maximize my environment. Because one thing uh, that we like to talk about in special operations medicine is that it's there's evidence-based medicine and there's also environment-based medicine. And the environment always has a say. And whether that's wind, whether that's noise, or sometimes when you do an emergency exfil or exfiltration, so you have to pick everybody up off the off the target plus your casualty, you may have your casualty plus 16 people with you or your casualty plus 30 people with you. So now not only are you working on this casualty in an already confined space, you now have a whole bunch of people around you. So you have to be able to manage that as well. And we just trained like we fought. We would always do real world scenarios. Uh, there was no faking it. If we were going to do an IV, we did an IV. You know, if we we're going to transfuse blood, that's probably the only time we faked it. So I, I take that back. You know, we would use food coloring and things like that. Uh, we would always <laughs> practice transfusing blood. We'd have fake narcotics with the real labels on them. So we always 
practice reading the exact label that we would use for something like ketamine or fentanyl or Versed. And it was just getting the reps in and getting comfortable over time and just getting better at one variable at a time and getting 1% better every day uh, with things like night using night vision goggles you know, as the helicopter is moving one direction, your body's facing the opposite direction, getting comfortable with that vestibular differences, the effects of altitude, the effects of dehydration, et cetera. So very similar, I think, to what you guys do is just maximizing your environment uh, with the capabilities that you have and, and taking control of it. You know, that that's a really subtle observation that being aboard a helicopter in flight uh, is, is stressful to the inexperienced, but being in an operating room is also stressful to the inexperienced. But I, I will say that there's a bit of a difference in that a lot of the stress in an operating room, and we've talked about this in a few episodes recently, actually, a lot of the stress we experience in an operating room is psychological or internal, but the surgeons and the, the people working aren't themselves in a state of physical danger. Whereas you in a helicopter, one, you're in the sky in a vehicle, which if it malfunctions, you know, you're, you're in the sky, but two, if you're in an active war zone, then obviously you're under some physical danger yourself. But I can I can see your point where when you're trained for it, when you're used to it, and that's your quote unquote normal abnormal environment, uh, you can at least accommodate and learn how to operate in that environment. And so I wonder, we were talking before the show today, you know, you, you told us you're a listener. And so I assume you're familiar with that short series we did, The Case I Can't Forget. And so since I'm kind of putting you on the spot in case you don't have a story ready to go, I'll, I'll give you two options because I obviously we have to ask for a story from that time of your life. So is there either some case you can't forget, some experience that has really stuck with you for whatever reason, or on the other hand, because you mentioned how you can get used to working in that environment, can you think of some experience you had treating a patient on the bird, as you say, that at the time was like a normal day at the office for you, but someone from the outside or looking back on it, you go, wow, that was actually really crazy. And if I experienced that on my first week, I would have freaked out, but it kind of just became a normal everyday thing. Can you give us a story that fits either of those? Yeah, I think so. Um, I would say one that I'll never forget because it, it had so much follow-up was uh, I got called in to do an evacuation in a very uh, dangerous valley uh, where there was unfortunately a grenade fight that kicked off. And initially there was a pediatric patient who had, uh, I was called in for to evacuate this pediatric patient who had exposed brain matter from getting hit with a, um, a, a kind of a suicide ID type situation. And on our way into, for this cause, we're preparing, um, you know, I was kind of mentally rehearsing for what I think I was going to do once I, once I had her and, and, you know, what I would be doing in transport and kind of rehearsing it and, and prepping my mind and prepping my space. Uh, the situation changed immediately and it went from this expectant, and that's a triage category, um, this expectant pediatric patient. It then changed to five uh, U.S. and allied forces being injured and became a mass casualty event. Uh, hmm. literally about four minutes out from picking up this one patient. So now what I was prepared for mentally and what I prepared my space for from a single patient now became five. And the situ once again, the environment has a say, the ground force was under direct enemy fire who had 
uh, elevation on them. We There was danger close explosives around, so there was explo- large explosives going off about 50 meters within the vicinity of where we're going to be landing uh, so that we had some safety to land this large helicopter that I was in. And when we got to the ground, we uh, picked up all five casualties. Uh, one uh, was a very urgent patient who required a lot of resuscitation uh, and a lot of damage control, damage control resuscitation, damage control surgery. I had a severe closed head injury patient um, who had about GCS4 uh, when I got to him, I had some guys who had some shrapnel in their back and legs, and I had one young man who had shrapnel to his leg and required some tourniquets. And it was just, you know, it's one of those things you don't forget. It's, it's your first MassCal. Uh, it was my first two weeks in the country on my first deployment with this organization. And it wasn't a long flight. You know, we, we were able to fly really fast and work these guys. And then when we got to the next level of care, we stayed with them for about 50 minutes and worked with the, that medical team on the ground and worked with all these, with, on these casualties still. But the work wasn't over because of this massive grenade fight. The very next day, we ended up screening 38 people who had mild traumatic brain injuries. And because of the op- operational tempo of, of war, these guys with mild traumatic brain injuries, when you have that many people with them, there's no time to pause. And so we had these guys who had some anger issues or sleep issues or, you know, they were having uh, the symptoms that you have. We had to go on target every night afterwards and get into more gunfights and get into more explosives. And so it was very eye opening to me. And it's really what sparked my obsession, I would say, with the acute and chronic effects of uh, blast trauma on the brain and spine. And I learned a lot from that situation. I, I didn't run that mass cow as best as I could. I could have controlled the cabin better as far as my triaging. I could have better controlled the handoff. Uh, I could have probably done some better treatments when I look back on it. And I'd say as well as maybe I could have um, done some better counseling for my MTBI patients as well, beyond just doing some uh, MACE 1 and MACE 2 scores on them. So you learn a lot from it. Uh, You do your best to manage the chaos. Uh, Sometimes you do really well. Sometimes it gets the best of you a little bit. So um, that was a a big day for all of us. And the pilots of that uh, day, they got air medals with Valor. And then our whole crew, we all were awarded air medals with uh, combat devices because of the landing and then the pulling off all the casualties. Yeah, you know, Ricky, that's uh, it's really interesting that among the things you you listed in your performance review, I guess, would be your your process of triaging all of those unexpected people that were in your lap when you went in there for one person. It, it's really interesting to me. We had Dr. Steve Giannata, Dr. G on the show a couple times, and, and he, a, a quote that has stayed with me, he defined the ideal neurosurgery resident the, the quality that defines that person is resistance to fatigue. And I was having a talk with that with my co-resident here, Rush, actually, who, who said that he thought the defining characteristic of an excellent neurosurgeon writ large is the ability to make high-level, high-impact decisions rapidly and then follow through on that. And that is, in a nutshell, triage. And it's interesting because I think in practice, neurosurgeons don't really face triage decisions too frequently. We decide whether or not to take someone to surgery. We decide if intervention is warranted. But aside from a rare circumstance where an on-call surgeon 
has three patients that all need emergency surgery and you have to pick the order, which is a rare situation, thankfully, in this country, in most cities, we don't really face life and death triage too frequently, at least that I've seen. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you were taught to triage patients in situations like that, how you got better at it, and just what that experience is like when you're in the shit yourself and you're suddenly <laughs> faced with all these people and you have to figure out what to do. Yeah. I, so we, we rank it. I think the best question you can ask yourself when facing even a single even a single casualty with multiple systems trauma, or when you have multiple casualties who have multiple systems trauma is asking first and foremost, what's killing my patient right now? And what are the next three things I need to do for them to stop that? And when you have multiple casualties, you basically, you rank it based on urgency to surgery that you can affect. So for example, if I have somebody who has hypovolemic shock, hemorrhagic shock, and then had the close head injury patient, I have these two and I'm balancing the two of them. I can, I know that the close head injury patient needs surgery ASAP. He needs a neurosurgeon. I can only do so much. I can give hypertonic saline, elevate the head of their bed, and make sure they have a good airway. You know, I can do a surgical airway, I can intubate them, and I can do seizure prophylaxis. But if it's a subdural or epidural hemat uh, hematoma, there's nothing I can do for that until I get the neurosurgery. I can fly faster. Well, not me, but the pilots. Versus my hemorrhagic shock patient who's circling the drain because of volume loss and oxygen loss, I can do damage control resuscitation on them. I can give them blood. I can give them calcium. I can give them TXA and get them back to being stable. And with triage, it's an ongoing process. So that could flip really fast. So with that same example, as I resuscitate my hemorrhagic shock patient and they become more stable, do they now take precedence over my close head injury patient who then say begins to seize, right? So what's killing my patient right now becomes very effective where my hemorrhagic shock patients are resuscitated. They're not great, but they're good. And now I have a patient who's seizing, who has a clodus head injury, and that could kill them. So I need to intervene on that. And what we look for is to not get distracted by certain injuries. And a great, a great example of that is a patient who's burned, but also is bleeding. The burns steal your eyes, right? The burns are the big, scary thing. They take everything. They take all your senses. You can smell it. You can see it. It's, it's horrible. But if they're bleeding out of their femoral artery, the femoral artery bleed is what's going to kill them, not the burn right now. I can worry about the burns later. So it's constantly evolving and assessing what's killing my patient right now, who actually needs me right now as a life-threatening uh, um, life injury. And the way we stack that is through a MARCH algorithm. And MARCH stands for massive hemorrhage, airway, respirations, circulation, hypothermia, slash head injuries. And those are ranked in order of the leading causes of death on the battlefield. And so if I have anybody massive hemorrhage, I got to get to them first. Then I can rack and stack based on airway. Then I can look at their respiratory status, circulation, et cetera. So um, it is takes a lot of practice. The really skilled medics, really skilled practitioners are not the person who can do the best treatments. It's not the person who can tie the best tourniquet or do the best surgical crike or get blood on faster than anybody. It's the one who can manage the chaos. So the best medics are, they manage the scene uh, and they manage that chaos. 
That that's fascinating, Ricky. With great great uh, advice, and you know, general surgeons certainly prepare for mass casualties. I think neurosurgeons probably should consider it because it can happen. Um, certainly in Los Angeles during the gang warfare, you saw it a lot. But uh, but really really uh, great input on that. I want to shift gears a little bit because I JP and I like to think that our audience is very sophisticated. Um, but who knows, right? Who knows in this highly polarized time? And when we were having drinks at that ale house, I really uh, got to spend a lot of time with uh, with William Myrick, and I'm hoping he'll come on the show because you know we had a, a a very emotional conversation about his time in Central Africa and what it was like. And and anybody who has not seen the movie Tears of the Sun, which stars I think it's Bruce Willis and Maria Bello, um, you know. The, the complexity of warfare um, versus the character of it. And I know a lot of folks listening, maybe they're very, uh, very much the pacifist and they're thinking, wow, you know, here's this guy who has all these medals from going out in, and granted you were a medic, but still you were in the military um, theater in, in, during active conflict in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I, I want to draw people's attention to the idea and concept that often those who see the horrors of war uh, become um, the, the most reluctant to be involved in conflict. And, and, and by that, what I mean is you've done an incredible amount of philanthropy on the back end. Uh, I'm thinking about you know the time that you were involved in the, the Afghan evacuee site in New Jersey, right, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I assume, mm-hmm. and what you've done in terms of supporting um, uh, folks in the military who've come back uh, wounded either through obvious scars or through the non-obvious ones, right? Talk to us about what that role has been like, because it's very different than being in a Black Hawk helicopter, right? Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different fight. And you know something I learned in um, special operations medicine is that we're patient advocates first, treatment specialists second. Uh, and that goes back to the same principles of anybody. Once again, anybody can put a tourniquet on, but patient advocacy is the medic's bread and butter. And that's, that's just a principle that I, f- I truly believe in and still want to do today. So um, the Afghan withdrawal is very difficult. It, it was a very unsettling time. It was uh, very unfortunate and there's a lot more to that, but uh, the sense of brevity. And so responding to the, refugee site, uh, the, Af- the at-risk Afghan refugee site, it was same thing I did with COVID. So I, I, re- I helped run a field hospital on Columbia soccer field called the Ryan F. Larkin Field Hospital. It's knowing that you have a skill set and an ability to help and not letting it go to waste. So I knew I have a disaster management background. I have a military contingency planning background. That's probably our, our best skill set of special operations medics is contingency planning. And I had medical skills. And that at-risk camp needed a disaster manager. It needed someone to think about the medical problem sets that we might face and then provide solutions for it. So, you know, we like to believe we're problem-minded and solution-oriented. And so I went there to welcome these people into the United States, make sure that their medical needs were met, ensure that we had the proper physicians on staff to provide those care, such as an OBGYN, uh, pediatrician, emergency medicine physicians, and then also make sure that the field medicines I was taking care of are the hand washing stations near the food. Are we putting the latrines at a far enough distance from their sleeping quarters and, and things like that, that you learn from warfare and that you learn from military experience. And then on the, on the other side of helping veterans with their uh, traumatic brain injuries or their psychological trauma, it's 
once again, when, when you're a special operations medic, you're a great, you work with everybody. You're a great networker. And so you meet a lot of people and you're able to help each other out because you know everybody in the community. And so just once again, taking those skill sets and saying, I have these abilities, I can let it go and, and move on, or I can continue to help people out. And so I just believe that the most, you know, money, money can define wealth, but to me, time defines wealth. And what I do with my time is, is really what shows uh, what I care about. So for me, giving back through nonprofit organizations or giving my time to people uh, means a lot. And I, I just really value that. So I've been very aggressive about trying to help special operations service members get into medical school. I've been uh, really aggressive about trying to get veterans themselves into, into things like medical school and advocating for them to become underrepresented in medicine. Uh, I've helped people do PhD theses and get into MBA programs and, and other things. So um, yeah, I think it's just really important um, to, if we have a skill set and we have training, we have uh, the ability to give time while I can, I'm going to do it. You know, I think that's a perfect transition for uh, really a very important thing that I want to ask you about, Ricky, as we wrap up here, because we've talked about all of these previous phases of your life and this entire career that you had. And, and now, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, you're at the beginning of a new one. And so I wonder, given all these experiences that you've shared with us, everything in your background that's led you to today, um, maybe just let us know why you're choosing to go the medical school route now and, and you know, the, the stereotypical question, if you will, why neurosurgery? But uh, just to speak more broadly, what are your intentions? What are your plans for your career from today forward? Sure. I really appreciate that question, too. Um, I when you're a medic, you especially in special operations, you kind of work in this field of supervised autonomy, which is an oxymoron. But I traveled all over the United States and all over the world with a scope of practice that was approved by my physician that I was allowed to practice independently, whether it was prescribing antibiotics or narcotics, doing minor surgical procedures, uh, doing damage control resuscitation, minor damage control surgical techniques. Um, I did it all on my own, but under the approval of a physician. And while I felt responsibility for all my patients and I took responsibility for my patients, I did not truly have full responsibility of my patients. And I think that that is a big separator for what a physician is, is that at the end of the day, the physician is the one who signs the certificate. They're the ones who accept that risk. Uh, and while you have a whole team around you that helps you manage that risk, minimize it, mitigate it, and action it, you are the one accepting that risk. And so I've truly felt it was time uh, for me to move into a career that allowed me to be the one to accept the risk. And I was very passionate about that. And uh, also all the pillars of medicine and science that I really love all stood up to be physician and that's research, surgical capability, being a leader, running teams, team dynamics, and then, uh, risk acceptance, risk mitigation and decision-making. It all surmised to being a physician. So it was what my dream was that it, it really decided to make sense. And then why neurosurgery? And why people may think I'm crazy now for saying, oh, you know, I'm coming to medical school. I want to go into neurosurgery. And, uh, you know, maybe this audience isn't like that, but I've had a lot of people tell me to pick a different choice. Um, I've had a lot of experience, luckily, on hospital rotations because of my prior career. I got to rotate through many, many services. I got to go to general surgery, trauma surgery, pediatric emergency medicine, emergency medicine, OB-GYN, 
um, internal medicine. And I had a big scope of practice in all of those places when I was rotating. And the first time I scrubbed into a neurosurgery was uh, a evacuation of a cerebellar uh, hematoma. And we were probably three hours into that surgery. And it felt like I had been there for 20 minutes. And Mm. the way that the neurosurgeon was interacting with the circulator and, and the anesthetist and managing the balance of ICP and the drug administration uh, and the patient's hemodynamic status while also using very fine motor skills while operating this drill, while drilling through C2, uh, it all just clicked to me. And it's the path pathophysiology I love. I've always been obsessed with the idea that um, one day you can be walking down the street and then the, the next day, because of a car accident or the impact to your brain or spine, your your life is now redefined. And I've always been obsessed with helping people uh, regain quality of life. And I'm very passionate about helping people define new normals and have the best quality of life as possible. And so I think just from experiences, my older brother uh, with his own neurotrauma and his cerebral palsy of me growing up with that my whole life, experiences in the military of seeing people with close head injuries, mild traumatic brain injury, and then luckily on hospital rotations and visits, uh, neurosurgery just seems like the right fit. And then from hanging out with neurosurgeons like Dr. Wang and his colleagues at Soma and, uh, and people that I'm friends with like Brian Wang, um, it's also the culture and people that I feel I fit best with and that I feel like I'm amongst people that um, are that I, I get along with. And I think that's a big, a big thing for me as well is that I'm happy when I'm around other neurosurgical interested people and then neurosurgeons in general. Well said. Um, well, as we uh, bring this to a close, I do want to point out for our listeners, Ricky's got a podcast of his own. Uh, Ricky, t- take a moment and just tell our listeners about your podcast. What's it called? How to find it, etc. Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's called R-Rated Science. Uh, and that is because we talk about topics that are often stigmatized in society. They're difficult to talk about for military and first responders, such as mental health, grief, loss. Uh, we talk to grief experts. We interview traumatic brain injury experts. We talk about uh, what it feels like to lose comrades in battle so we can have more public discourse around this so we can hopefully destigmatize some of these conversations. And it's on anywhere you listen to podcasts, Podbean, Apple, Spotify. And then we, we're on Instagram at R8 Science Podcast. Well, Ricky, thank you for coming on our podcast today and kicking off this mini series. Best of luck at Rush. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot from you in your career. And uh, again, um, I want to salute all the active and uh, veteran uh, military folks out there. Um, This really is uh, an important weekend. I'm here in Florida and and we have an air and sea show here and we just had a couple of Apaches go over and a couple of 810 Warthogs as well. So very, very cool stuff. Um, Please make time to come back and talk to us more about how your career is progressing and hopefully uh, you're going to be a neurosurgeon as well. Thank you so much. I appreciate both your guys' time and for having me on the show. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.